If you open your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 8, we'll be looking at verses 26 through 30 today. Romans chapter 8, 26 through 30. So last week, uh, in our study of Romans, we saw that glory is waiting for us. There is a future glory waiting for us, and there are sufferings, however, in this present time. And we groan, and we long in this, in this present time, waiting for future glory. And we must wait for it with patience and steadfastness. And the glory will be revealed in the future. And what is that glory? That glory is a, an umbrella word for everything Christ has that he shares with us. And so in verse 16, Jeff read this in worship today, the Spirit, with his spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, who's the Son of God? It's Jesus Christ. So Jesus shares with us what belongs to him. That's the good news of salvation. Verse 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs, with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. The chief benefit of salvation is, is more than eternal life, is more than heaven. The chief benefit of salvation is one's union with Christ, whereby you are brought into folded into his biography. So think of being in Christ even in terms of location. There's, and I've used this analogy before, if there's a ship going to the Bahamas, what relationship do I have to have with the ship in order to have all the benefits? It's, I have to be on it or in the ship. That's the idea of union with Christ. You are in Christ, and Christ is also in you. And you've been raised up with him, seated with him in heavenly places, and you will be glorified with him. And it almost sounds blasphemous to say, but I think it is, it is one of those peculiar glories, peculiar truths that Scripture has for us that we have not fully tasted as Christians. Um, so, the chief benefit of salvation is union with Christ, which involves glory. But that is not to say that everything is in the future. That's not to say that everything we experience with God is just left to the distant future until we die. God is intimately supervising, intimately involved in your life, in my life, right now as children of God, and he is taking our sufferings and he is folding them in to his plan, which leads us to this glory. All right, so that's where we're going today. So if you'll read with me, Romans 8, verses 26 through 30. The Apostle Paul writes, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, 
all things work together for good for those who love the Lord, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen. Amen. Now, in this passage, we're told three things. Number one, that the Holy Spirit helps you in prayer. Number two, that God is at work in the various trials in your life, working them together for good. And number three, that God has a pre-temporal, that means before time plan for you, which is a guarantee that you're destined for glory. So let's, and here's the main point I want to get across to you today. The main point is that God is not detached from your life. We're not just waiting to die as Christians. Although there is is a glorious future on the other side of death, and we should not be afraid of it, we should not dread it as Christians, there is a glorious future on the other side of death. A Christian funeral means we've been promoted to glory. Amen. However, however, I want to say that In this life, God is with you and intimately involved in your life. So it may feel sometimes like God is distant in your circumstances and trials and your sufferings and you're in these um, adversity that you might be facing. But that's why we're given this promise. Because sometimes what we feel does not correspond to what is actually true. So God is sovereignly and intimately supervising your life in ways that you cannot fully perceive. That's what I want to get across today. So let's start with verse um, 26 and 27. The Spirit's help in prayer. The Apostle Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us, with groanings too deep for words. Notice this, that your condition, what is the condition that is assumed that you'll have as a Christian? Strong, heroic, spiritual powerhouse? No. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. That is so precious to me because I am weak and dependent. I don't know if you felt that way, but spiritually, the most mature Christians come to an understanding that they are extremely dependent on God, because it's true. Jesus Christ said, "Um, apart from me, you can do nothing. I am the vine, you are the branches. So the Spirit does not remove weakness from us, all right? The Spirit comes in, he comes alongside your weakness and helps you in it. And the Apostle Paul embraced this because it's not in in your strength that God helps you. It's in your weakness that God helps you. So when you try to be self-sufficient, somehow spiritually self-sufficient, 
God's power might not rest on you in the same way that it would as if you were weak. And the Apostle Paul knew this when he prayed that whatever this, this um, malady was, a physical malady, might be removed from him. He said he prayed to God three times that he might remove this messenger of Satan. And God's answer was, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will all the more bo- gladly boast of my weakness, says Paul, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So, if you would like the power of Christ to rest upon you, approach him as utterly, go through life utterly dependent on God. Now, I've taught some of you that prayer that I learned from, from John Piper, which is aptat. It's a great way to, to, to go through anything in life. Aptat is an acronym for um, knowing that apart from God, I can do nothing. So I P, I pray for strength. T, I trust a blood-bought promise in Scripture, like he will keep in perfect peace, him whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And then I A, I act. I do what I need to do. I go forward with life. I strengthen my weak knees. I make straight the path for my feet. And I act, trusting the Lord that he is with me and that I'll struggle with all his might that he powerfully works within me. And then afterwards, I thank God, knowing that he's been with me all the while. That's how you go through life as a Christian. You acknowledge that you are helpless and dependent on him. You pray for his strength. You trust his promises, and then you act. And then you thank God, knowing that he's been with you all along. So, that's the condition with which one approaches God properly. Weakness. But what's your experience? Now, in prayer... Some Christians are under the impression that their prayer life is going to be just euphoria. I'm going to come to the Lord. Now that I'm a Christian, I'm going to come to the Lord. I'm going to be caught up to the third heaven in prayer. And I'm going to experience the grandeur of the glory of God when I come to him in prayer. Well, I know I don't experience that. And the Apostle Paul says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness For we don't know what to pray for, as we ought. I love that. Paul's a realist about the spiritual life. Sometimes I get on my knees. I don't even know what to pray for about this. I come to God with a specific situation. I remember a very particular difficult situation last year. I don't even know what to pray about this. That was my prayer. I don't even know what the right thing to say is, Lord but I'm coming to you in weakness and dependence. So Paul is touching on that inability to discern what even to pray sometimes. And I'm sure you've experienced that before too. We don't come to God in strength and power, knowing exactly what God should do in specific situations. We come to him in weakness and dependence, sometimes not even knowing what the right thing to pray is. But the Spirit intercedes with us, for us, with groanings too deep for words. 
Paul says. That means the Spirit comes alongside to help you in your prayer. And he will take that, your my clumsy, inarticulate mutterings, saying, I don't even know what to pray, and he will beautify them before the courts of the Lord. And he will, and he will intercede for me according to God's will. And I think that's the promise we have here. He, the Holy Spirit will translate my clumsy prayers before God so, so that they are like frankincense in his courts because you're a child of God. And so when my son or daughter comes to me with inarticulate mutterings about something that is wrong, sometimes it's a fight, but it's something that is not going right, maybe they, they've hurt themselves, I, I want to hear them. Uh, I, I have a fatherly care for them, and that's the way we need to approach the Lord, that he has a fatherly care for us because we're child of God, children of God, and the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Sometimes you don't know what to pray, but the Holy Spirit takes that and translate it, translates it to a beautiful sound before the Lord. So two things I want to get across to you based on that what I just read, those, those two verses. Number one, you're not promised a euphoric experience to be caught up in the presence of the Lord in prayer. Sometimes you'll experience bewilderment in prayer. So this is a call to pray in faith. Pray within the forgiveness that Christ offers. Pray through the Holy Spirit and understand that even your, your groanings, your inarticulate mutterings, Sometimes your, your exasperation is beautified before the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean we should approach him flippantly. We approach the Lord in reverence. However, we can approach the Lord honestly and authentically. Now, this is something I'm learning, number two. Something I'm learning is that in prayer, don't spend your whole time in prayer trying to say the right things. That, that prayer becomes a performance that way. Now, there, there, it, there's a proper way to pray. But don't come to the Lord trying to say the exact right words all the time and simply offer a performance to the Lord that hopefully he'll accept. Come to the Lord honestly and authentically as a child of God. So... Like I said, sometimes you won't know what to pray. So come to him saying, Lord, I don't, I don't know what to pray about this. I know I'm supposed to pray, pray hallowed be your name, Lord, but I don't, I don't feel like a hallow your name. I don't have that, that welling up within me. I don't have the fear of you like I ought to. I don't know what I should do about this specific situation. Pray authentically to the Lord and honestly bear your heart to him as a child, not, a, not as a performance, but coming to him as a needy, dependent, weak child of God so that the power of God might rest on you. So the Spirit helps you in your weakness, and even as you experience bewilderment in prayer, he is taking your prayers and translating them in the presence of the Lord. But it's not only that God helps you in prayer through the Holy Spirit. It's that he is providentially working things for your benefit. 
verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What a promise that is. All things work together for good for those who are called, for those who love him. So even things that seem hopeless and pointless, God is working together for good in your life. So difficulty at your job and coronaviruses and cancers, those are all subsets of all things. Am I right? That's a, that, those are parts of all things. So when the Bible tells us that all things work together for good, that means even the things which seem bad on face value. Now, note, they work together for good, not for everyone, but for those who love the Lord and for those who are called according to his purpose. And you and me as children of God have this blood-bought promise that all things, including adversity, is working together for good. Good meaning a good beneficial outcome in your favor. So God is taking the, the threads of sickness, of broken homes, of lost jobs, of financial struggles, of sore throats, of cancers and viruses, and he is weaving them together for a good purpose for you. And the reason we're given that promise is because we have a limited perception of reality. And we cannot immediately see what good may come from this. That's why we're given this promise, because we need to understand that we are limited. And we can trust God to work things out in our favor and for his glory. Now, um, Just because you can't see the good doesn't mean that God doesn't have a purpose. And philosophers, atheistic philosophers for a long time have tried to disprove the existence of God by saying, well, listen, if there's so much suffering in the world, so much adversity in the world, doesn't that disprove a good God that's all-powerful and omniscient? There's a philosopher named Alvin Plantinga who completely deconstructed this argument. I think it was in the 50s or 60s and changed the landscape of this kind of argumentation. He says, well, suppose, suppose that God had a reason for allowing adversity in your life. Suppose he did have a reason. Why well, think that if God did have a reason for allowing suffering in your life, that you would be the first to know what that reason is? Why well, think that? He says, many assume that if God does have a reason for suffering and adversity in their life, it would be accessible to their minds. But there's no reason why we should think that. And he gives an example. He says, if I look in my tent, say I'm camping in the woods, and I look in my tent, and I don't see a St. Bernard in my tent. He said, I'm warranted in believing that there is no St. Bernard in my tent. Right? I don't see a St. Bernard. There probably is no St. Bernard in my tent. But he says, if I look in my tent and I don't see, there's a small bug in the Midwest called a noceum. You ever heard of that? A noceum is a small little bug that has a really hard bite to it, really strong bite that hurts. 
And he says, if I look into my tent, oh, the reason they're called no seams is because you can't see them. <laughs> so he says, if I look into my tent and I don't see a no seam, he says, I'm not necessarily warranted in believing that there are none in my tent. And he says, many assume that God's reasons for permitting evil are like the St. Bernard instead of the Noceum. Why think that? Why think that God's providence would be so conspicuous that we could see exactly what he's doing in our life as we're going through it? And I think we have testimony in Scripture that shows us that God's providence is more like a Noceum than a St. Bernard. Think of the obvious example of the life of Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers, was thrown into jail in Egypt for years. Now, what good, you might ask, would come from such things, being sold into slavery and jailed and forgotten about? Only for years later, for him to ascend to one of the highest positions in Egypt, and then tell his brothers in Genesis 50, 20, after all these things has, has happened, he tells his brothers, you meant it for evil when you sold me into slavery, but God meant it for good so that many lives might be saved. And it's only because those things happened to Joseph that he was in Egypt. And it's only because he was in Egypt that he arose to a level that he could save crops for the famine. And it's only because he did that that the children of God, the family of Abraham, were safe from famine and starvation. That would not have happened if his brothers were not sold into slavery. And there would be no way to know that that was happening as Joseph was going through it for those many years. So God's reason for permitting adversity in your life is, is inconspicuous. You cannot see it all the time. But we trust that all things are working to good, for good for those who love the Lord. Um, I'm reading a, a small little biography. I read a small little biography of J.C. Ryle, a great preacher in the 1800s. And, and he tells a story of the fact that when he was growing up, he was really wealthy. His father owned two banks, and he went to Oxford, and he, he graduated at the top of his class, and he was going for a career in politics. But the managers of his father's banks gave out some bad loans. And this word got around, and none of the businesses in England were accepting notes from that bank anymore because they realized that it was not backed by reliable money because bad loans were being given out. As word got around, the banks collapsed, and they, the whole family went into bankruptcy. He said, he has a line in his little biography, autobiography, he says, in the morning, we woke up and the whole world was before us. In the night, when we went to bed, we were in ruins as a family. He reflected on this as an older man, and he said, if that hadn't happened, the bankruptcy, I would have gone into parliament, and I would have had no regard for the Lord in my life. 
But he said, since I was ruined like that, and since my family became a byword in town, and no one would talk to us or do business with us, because actually bankruptcy in that day was a criminal offense. I was brought to nothing, and I cried out to God. And that's what led me to the ministry, and that's what led me to write great books for the Lord. And that those kind of books... Um, had, an, had an, an effect on great men even today, like J.I. Packer, who himself has been a great uh, example for a lot of people. So the point is that you don't know what God is working, and it may, it may be a long time in your life before you see any fruit, or you might not see any fruit. The point is that God is working together for good, these things, for those who love the Lord. But we have to see that God's good from his perspective, not ours. Good does not mean materialistic things. It doesn't mean wealth. It doesn't necessarily mean health. It means God has a purpose, a redemptive purpose for your good and his glory in adversity. And the Apostle Paul knew this. I love this passage. 2 Corinthians 1.8. He says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But Paul believes that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. So what does he say? But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. The whole point of being brought low in Paul's eyes and through his faith was so that he would rely on God more. A God who raises the dead. So, God works all things together for good for those who love the Lord. We should know that he has a purpose behind adversity. And we should humble ourselves under God's sovereign hand when we face that adversity, trusting that he works all things after the counsel of his own will for his glory and for the good of his children. Proceed in faith through adversity as a child of God. Now, do we have, do we have a hint as to what Paul has in mind? What, what is the good that Paul has in mind? I've already hinted at it, but it's there in verse 29. All things work together for good for those who love the Lord, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The aim of redemption and the good that God has planned for you is that you would be conformed to the image of Christ. The destiny toward which God has set believers is Christ-likeness. So that has present and future aspects. Presently, Christ-likeness means you have the mind of Christ, you take on his perspective, you, his, you take on his character, and that is the point of discipleship, is it not? 
All authority has been given to me, Jesus said. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. The point of discipleship is Christ-likeness. It's to, Jesus wants to teach us to teach one another everything that he has commanded us, and that's precisely what the apostles are doing and what we are doing when we come to his word in church. So that's the present conformity. The future conformity is when we're transformed, our lowly bodies are transformed to his glorious body. That is the future conformity that we're headed towards. The whole point of the Christian life is Christ-likeness in spirit and in truth, in character and future, in the future, in body, when you will be raised from the dead just like your Savior with whom you are united. So think of growth in the Christian life. Growth in the Christian life is not like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. It's not like that. I remember one of my professors in spiritual formation class in Nyack. He was trying to say, you know, I like to think of this verse better as um, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be transformed. You know, he really liked transformation and he, because, you know, it was exciting and new. But that misses the whole point. The whole point is not that you just take on a beautiful form abstracted from Christ. The whole point is that you be conformed to Christ and Christ-likeness. So it's Christian growth is not like turning into a butterfly. It's more like tinfoil wrapping around an object, being conformed to Christ and Christ-likeness. So adversity in your life is meant to forge that Christ-likeness within you. So God is with us in prayer through the Holy Spirit. He is providentially working all things together for good for those who love you. And now Paul backs up a bit and he puts this in God's plan before time began. In verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is often called the golden chain of redemption because Paul is talking about the fixed destiny that God has for Christians from foreknowing them from the foundations of the earth to the glory that they'll share with Christ in the future. Now, usually when this passage is talked about, it's talked about as a debate <laughs> between God's sovereignty and his foreknowledge and human freedom and does God love everyone and election. And so we need to touch on that. I don't want to ignore that. So, some think, there are two ways to understand this. Some think that 
God foreknowing in verse 29 refers to mere cognition, that God just knows. God knows who will accept him. And so God knows who will accept he knows He knows everything. So he knows who's going to accept them, and therefore he predestines those people to glory. Those, that is, God knows, foreknows who would receive him. That's one way to understand it. Usually the Arminian way of understanding it. The other way of understanding this is that knowledge connotes something deeper, something deeper and more intimate than mere cognition, mere being aware about who's going to accept him. Knowledge here, many would say, seems to carry the sense of intimacy, something like have regard for, to know with unique affection before time began. And uh, frankly, I have come around to believe that the second way of understanding this is the correct way. Um, Because in the Bible, knowledge means something more than just knowing about. There's an intimacy to knowledge, God's knowledge of people and people's knowledge of one another. So in, for example, in Genesis 4.1, here's an obvious example. It says that Adam knew his wife Eve. Now I want to submit to you that that passage means more than Adam knew about Eve. Adam knew his wife Eve in an intimate sexual sense, which is why they had children from that knowing. The knowing was had an effect. It was more intimate than just being aware about something. In Jeremiah 1.5, God says to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Again, God didn't just simply foresee that Jeremiah would be a prophet. God consecrated Jeremiah. He appointed him to be a prophet before he was born. And in that sense, he knew Jeremiah. He had regard for him before he was even born. So I believe, and there are, there are many other examples we could give here. So I have come to believe, with all the goodwill on earth to try to give the other position my best shot, I just am not convinced that that foreknowledge here means that God simply knew about people. He knew them in an intimate sense. Um, Furthermore, the passage doesn't say he knows what they will choose. It says those whom he foreknew. The foreknowledge is about people specifically, not about anything they will do, but about them. And that foreknowledge leads to calling. And that calling leads all the way to glory. So, to foreknow, and again, with all the goodwill in the world for the other side, and I I even try to convince myself of it, but I have come to the conviction that to foreknow is a Hebrew idiom for something like for love or to choose. That this passage, therefore, 
points to predestination unto salvation for those whom God for love before time began. Now, if, if you believe that, well, that's, you know, that's kind of sketchy, a sketchy basis to talk about predestination and election. I just want you to flip one page over with me to Romans 9. And we're going to get to this passage, but I just want to ground this belief in something substantive throughout the Bible. Um, the Apostle Paul is talking about God's sovereign choice. In verse 9, he says, For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not born and not had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. In verse 15, he says, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not on human will or exertion, but dependent on God who has mercy. And I could go on. In Acts 13, 48, the Apostle Paul is preaching. And Acts 13, 48, I'll turn there. Um, the Apostle Paul is preaching in Antioch. And um, Paul preaches to the Gentiles and it says, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God, the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believe. As many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. So, God foreknew you and me, if we are Christians, in an intimate sense before time began. And then he called you. And Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws them. And in Acts 16, 14, we're told that one of the women, whose name was Lydia from the city of Thyateria, was a seller of purple goods who worshipped God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That's calling. Calling means that God opens your heart and your minds to receive the word preached because he foreknew that person since time began. So one's destination to Christ-likeness, it seems, and his resurrection to glory is based upon God's electing love and foreknowledge before time began. Are you with me? What's the basis for this choice is what comes out of me. That's the question that comes out of me immediately. As somebody who does not identify as a Calvinist per se, what's the basis for God's choice? It's almost frustrating. Why did God choose some and not others? We are not told. What's the basis for God's choice? We are not told what the basis for God's choice is. 
Here's the one thing I will say. Not as if I haven't been saying things, but here's, a, here's another thing I will say. Um, does God want some people to go to hell and not others? So God foreknew you and me. Does he want the other people to go to hell? Some people think so. I don't think so. Because there are other passages in Scripture that are just as strong about God's desire for all people to be saved as his desire to save those whom he foreknew. 1 Timothy 2.4 God is our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3.9 the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Does he give everyone a chance equally? I think so. Acts 17, 20, 26 through 27. And he made, that is God, from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having predetermined their allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him. So the, the reason God put you and me here and he put other people elsewhere and he determined their allotted periods of life and their dwelling places is so that they would seek God and find him. And I believe if a person will respond to the gospel, God will give them the gospel. Do we have an example of that in scripture? I think so. Acts 10, Cornelius, a Roman centurion, was a worshiper of God. And God told Peter to give that man the gospel. He didn't save him just because he was a good worshiper of God. He brought him the gospel. But my point is this, that his heart was open to receive the word, and therefore God gave him the word. So, here's where I am. Have patience with me. Here's where I am. I believe that God foreknew you since the foundation of the world, that he did not foreknow other people, and he foreknew you specifically. He called you with a mighty arm. He set his love on you before time began. And he opened your mind to receive the gospel. And he justified you and he will glorify you. Your destiny is fixed since the foundation of the earth. I also believe that God is not willing that any should perish. And that, he, that all should reach repentance. And that he does give them a chance. So theologically speaking, I am living in a tension between God's foreknowledge and election and God's desire for all people to be saved. And the way I see it, honestly, the way I see it, I have good Calvinist brothers. I have good Arminian brothers. The way I see it is the problem is sometimes we get caught up in preaching a system. And then we let some passages kind of go by the wayside because we're, we're bound to preach this system. And I'm not preaching systems. 
I'm preaching passages. And how I put that together, I don't know yet. But I do know I have a limited perspective on the truth. I'm not here to preach systems. I'm here to preach Romans 8, 26 through 30 right now. And Romans 8, 26 through 30 says that God set his love on you before time began. And I'm going to stick with that. So the purpose of this passage is not to present a theological quandary, though. It's not, what should we think about God's foreknowing? The purpose of this passage is to hold out a promise to you. All right, so your adversity in life does not mean God loves you less or does not mean that God is somehow taking his favor away from you. The fact that you don't really feel it in prayer all the time does not mean that God is distant from you. We don't know what to pray as we ought, Romans 8.20. We don't, we don't even know. Paul says that right there. This is not... What you experience in prayer, the bewilderment you experience in prayer, is not unusual. All right? And it doesn't mean that God loves you less. It doesn't mean that you're less spiritual, that you love God less. It means that you're in a fallen state and you have not yet been glorified. But be assured that the Holy Spirit takes your clumsy mutterings and beautifies them before the courts of the Lord. Be assured that your adversity does not mean a lesser love for you. It means that within that, God has a plan that you may not be able to perceive. Perhaps it's like a no -seum. How do you go? How do you proceed then in faith? You proceed in faith. Trusting these promises, clinging to them, and don't try to get over adversity. As I'd said before, you go through adversity in faith, hope, and love, trusting that God is sovereign and that he has a sovereign plan for all these things that happen to you from the beginning of time up until glory. Amen? So... You could be defeated by your bewilderment in prayer. Or you could approach him in faith, even if you don't feel the tug on your heart at that moment. You could be anxious about your life and the adversity you're facing. Or you could move forward in peace and trust, knowing that God has a plan. You could be anxious about your salvation. Or you could trust that God has foreloved you for the foundation of the world and that he has a plan, a fixed destination for you, which is glory. I suggest that you side with trust and faith in God rather than anxiety and bewilderment. These are blood-bought promises, so cling to them. Let's close in a word of prayer.